Hello and welcome to another Father Carpenter podcast. I have had a couple of weeks break from making this podcast because we have recently released the Father Carpenter coffee range. Um, So me and the guys have been busy getting the green coffee that we organized months ago to the roastery and profiling it and doing quality control and labeling all the new bags and getting the product to the cafe here in Berlin. Uh, All of our new coffees will be available on our web shop shortly. Uh, We're just waiting for uh, the logistics company to set our account up for us. That'll be ready soon, but uh, this is explaining the brief hiatus that I have had away from this podcast. Uh, I'm back now. Today I spoke with uh, a great friend of mine, Rodolfo Rufacti, Rodolfo Batle from El Salvador, who is the owner-operator of Finca El Salvador um, in, in El Salvador. Uh, I've been buying coffee from him for years, uh, he's a great friend uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed catching up with him and, or, and a few of his team members about coffee processing, coffee growing at origin, what organic means uh, and just a general chit chat. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Rodolfo, Rufati Rodolfo. <coughs> Thanks for yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so right now you have just arrived back at your farm, I assume, in El Salvador. Uh, like we're we're at the mill right now. Yeah, okay. So and where 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 is the mill? The mill is in western El Salvador, like close to Guatemala. So like we're on the edge of the country. Um, yeah. Okay. Nice. Uh, and you are a, a coffee producer, a coffee processor, a coffee importer, a coffee pretty much everything except for cafe owner and roaster, actually. But like yeah. the, the rest of it you do, yeah. Uh, but, tell us a little bit about your story over the last kind of like five to ten, year, ten years. Um, well, yeah, I mean, to, to make it short, I come from like a coffee producing family and uh, – so we manage our own farms and then we process coffee we export it and uh you know before we used to sell coffee to kind of like middlemen importers and uh you know the relationship didn't feel so great uh so we started looking for roasters uh to sell our coffees direct to roasters and uh that you know that went a lot better it was like a you know each person or each group is like contributing to make coffee better. And like we do our part growing coffee and processing coffee. And then it's put in a container and it arrives at the, you know, you can either send it to a warehouse and distribute to a lot of small roasters or you send a container direct to a bigger roaster. Uh, So like, you know, the logistics part was just like a small part once you've already taken all the risks. So we decided to, make an importing company in Germany. So now we bring our coffees to Germany, uh, make it easy for, you know, roasters like yourself to access our coffees. And, uh, and then that led us to working in other countries uh, so we can source and collaborate with friends. And, uh, yeah, so we source coffees from different parts of the world. True, crazy. And you, you, you have two farms. I am... The, the main farm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the main farm is called Finca El Salvador. And you have a second farm that used to be called Lombardia and recently has had a name change. Can you tell me the name change and the reason behind the name change um, for the second one? Yeah, I mean, you know, so it's, uh, it's a, the name change is about like appreciating local stuff. Uh, because it, like here, a thing that happens is... Um, that everyone thinks that it's better somewhere else. So a lot of the naming of things are like aspirational. I mean, like here, like a big housing project is called Ciudad Versailles, you know, so like Versailles, um, you know, so it's uh, like people are always looking for European names uh, instead of appreciating like a local name, right? So the farm was called Finca Lombardia. Like my family comes from Italy, you know, we settled here. 
but were actually like from Piemonte and Liguria. And so like I asked my dad, like, why did you call the farm Finca Lombardia and not like Piemonte or Piemontese, you know? And, and it's like, oh, I just sounded nice, you know? So I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a good reason. So, um, you know, so we're actually like this route of, uh, you know, inheriting my uh, father's farms and trying to manage them in a more sustainable way <clears throat> led me to learn about uh, local shade trees. And so, like, you know, I thought we were ahead here in El Salvador because uh, in a lot of places, like most of Colombia or all of Brazil or most of Brazil, uh, they plant coffee kind of like uh, corn or like wheat, just like fields of coffee with no other trees. And here in El Salvador, we grow coffee more like the original way in Ethiopia under the canopy of shade trees, so larger trees. And I thought we were already doing a good job by having shade trees, but then I realized like we have uh, sh like short shade trees that we trim down. Uh, so we're, you know, we're at like 15 meters high when the actual forest of El Salvador, you know, used to have trees that arrive at 40 meters high or higher. Uh, so one of the, and especially in the lowlands. So Finca, now it's called Finca Guanacaste. It's like around 950 meters. So it's like a challenging, place for coffee you know it's like a climate change challenge and so you know sometimes people think that you remove trees because they compete with coffee for water but actually it could be that these huge trees they absorb water they hold it in their roots and then they release it during the dry season so it, it keeps everything fresher and uh, you know less uh, sunlight hitting the ground more photosynthesis uh, more life going around uh, so we started planting a lot of like the large uh, tropical trees. Uh, so one of the most important ones here is uh, Guanacaste, like a Conacaste tree. So the actual Nahuatl name is Guanacaxtle. So like Salvadorians are called Guanacos. And the real reason why we're called Guanacos is because we used to hang out under the Guanacaxtle tree because it's like a fresh tree, you know, like releasing all this water uh, through its tomata, through the leaves and creating like a, fresher environment than a site next door that's just in direct sunlight. Yeah, so it's kind of, <laughs> that's, uh, the that's so, it's so good. Have, yeah. have you had, have you had like a positive response from people like in, in the local area for, for like not, not really. naming it like uh, a European name? Like, it's like no one really hears the name or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know. Que si, si alguien ha comentado algo del cambio del nombre de la finca. No, no, ahorita no. No one said anything, they said. Food for, food for thought for people for the future, yeah. I imagine. I yeah. get you that. And then, and then your other farm, Finca Ross Salvador, tell us a little bit about that. That's, uh, that's like the majority of coffee that I've bought from you comes from Finca Ross Salvador. Uh, yeah, so it's a larger farm, higher elevation. So it's, um, so the, the way we're focusing on things, like Guanacaste is more, it can be more of a playground to experiment with uh, farm diversification. Like it's not the most ideal place for coffee. Uh, so we're like, it's more ideal for cacao, for example. So it's like, we're trying different things like bamboo, um, cacao, uh, like tomatoes, chilies, like things that are from here. Uh, and then like Finca El Salvador, it's like a more serious coffee farm. So it's like more focused on just specialty coffee. Yeah. Through that farm diversification that you're talking about before is like something pretty interesting and also like a kind of not a hot topic in Europe, but like a, something that is a very much like interest in this current day and age in uh, coffee in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit more about like farm diversification? Because like, is it because coffee is becoming harder to grow or is it because coffee is becoming like an unsustainable crop or is it for shits well, and giggles? Is it for fun? What's, what's uh, farm diversification yeah, or is so it just like changing yeah. varieties or? Uh, I'll bring in Javier in a second because uh, he's in charge of the farm diversification, but I'll start with yeah. an intro about it. Um, so basically like uh, part of it, it's just having a more like resilient uh, farm that's more profitable and uh, ecologically better. Like, I mean, it doesn't make sense to just have a monocrop of coffee. Like that's why people have gotten so much trouble. Uh, for example, like uh, leaf rust epidemic, like having just 
poor bone trees uh, with chemical management, made some really weak plants that then got attacked by leaf rust. And most of the farms here got destroyed. Uh, so if you, if you, you know, this is the country with the most active volcanoes per square meter. Uh, so it's like super rich volcanic soil. Um, so to just grow coffee in a farm is sort of like a waste. And then uh, one of the first things we started doing when I started, like my dad retired during the pandemic 2020. Uh, so it was like a time where everyone was kind of like in pause, uncertainty. And uh, one of the first things I started doing was uh, stop spraying uh, herbicide. So when you stop spraying herbicide, uh, like planet Earth sort of rewards you with all these plants that start growing. So all of a sudden we had all these like wild berries growing in the farm and wild tomatoes and wild chilies. Uh, so I thought like, imagine like we've been poisoning this land uh, for decades with uh, chemicals and, and it, you know, it's so resilient that these tomatoes, even though we poisoned and poisoned, like they kept coming back. So now, you know, it's sort of like planet earth talking to you. Uh, also like they're supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, if you look at, like, uh, like if you study Mesoamerica, Mesoamerica would be, like, southern Mexico and northern Central America was, like, kind of, like, the cultural, like, Mayan lands. Uh, like, they developed so many foods, um, you know, corn, beans, all pumpkins come from here, chilies, tomatoes, like, you know, any tomato anywhere, like, it comes from here. So if we have, like, the original wild tomato growing in our farm, that's sort of like a gift of nature right they made this thing it's there and to see kind of like diets nowadays being a lot less diverse than what people were eating you know like 2000 years ago uh it's kind of like a shame and part of that has been like just growing coffee and not growing food uh so i felt like kind of like an obligation but at the same time it's like a positive thing uh because it can generate more income and make a more resilient farm also protecting against climate change, against like having a bad year in coffee, that you would have all these other revenue streams, like capturing more value for the farm. So for example, like uh, the chilies, right? We don't not only want to grow the chili, but like learn to dry it, learn to smoke it, learn to make our own hot sauce. So it's sort of like pivoting to being uh, like a more general uh, food supplier and not just coffee, like we can grow these other tropical products, right? That so also, uh, that also rewards the land in a way as well, right? Yeah, so, okay, so Javier, um, you know, he was a chef. Hey. Um, like, he, well, he is a chef. He, you know, he, he used to work in advertising and then he had a life change and he opened a vegan restaurant. So he was uh, vegan for a while, but now, now he changed and uh, he's eating meat. Um, yeah. But like, you know, we brought him in as like a part-time kind of like helper who's helping us like diversify, you know, so he can tell you a bit about like the experiments that he's done and uh, hey. like with the chili nice. tomatoes and yeah. Thank, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah tell us about these experiments. Yeah, it, uh, for me, it's very interesting to be in this project because I used to, uh, like Rodolfo say, that I used to be a a uh, uh, marketing producer. Uh, so I make TV commercials and then I, I make a life change. So I opened my restaurant, vegan restaurant that I have, I have it for 13 years. That's my, no, I said, so, and, and, and then Rolfo came to me and talked me about this, pro this, this project. Uh, about diversification in the farms to cultivate another uh, products of food that we can eat, uh, process, uh, dry, uh, to 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 keep them long, long, for a long time, you know, um, and trying to get all the seeds, like local seeds that we have in the farm already, like the tomatoes and the chilies, and getting another another kind of seeds trying to get only like organics and and no gmos ge genetic modification seeds you know to try to keep it uh, good for us for the health for the environment so, you know so here it's it's a bit difficult to source seeds uh because uh like by now el salvador imports most of its food so a lot yeah. of the vegetables come from guatemala 
so there's not a lot of diversity here. It's been lost, and there's it's hard to find like the local seeds. You know, like there's it's not it's not like there's this nice website that you just order like whatever rare seeds like like it's easy in the developed world. I guess yeah. like where people are already conscious about this and the importance of like preserving seeds and stuff like here it's uh, like you go to the agronomical stores and they have like just like you know the standard carrot the standard uh you know whatever or just like kind of monsanto stuff yeah like a challenge to like you know keep your own seed and then you know it becomes like a thing that we work with small producers so then it's like everyone should have their veggie garden and their farm about food security and sharing seeds with each other right okay yeah no. but yeah we're, we are, are, there, very are there, there yeah tell me i was gonna say is like are, are there any kind of like food food producers organic whatever biodynamic food producers in el salvador that have like variety gardens to try and like get heirloom seeds yeah. of el salvador yeah, yeah they're all our privates so, like, and they're not restaurants or uh -huh. something there's just a few. They're like okay. three from the country or four at most. Anyway, but so tell, tell us more about the diversification of the of the farm or farms. The, the diversification yeah. in the farm is very interesting and, and it makes me very happy because I'm learning about how all the plants uh, make a change, not only to the food that we get, it, it they, they make like a... Uh, uh, um, they, like, they put like... They put like nitrogeno y cosas así uh, Yeah, like, like, like for example, like legumes that you can either grow beans on the on the ground as ground cover or as huge shade trees. They're both like legume trees that have yeah. a relationship with microorganisms that uh, they take nitrogen from the air and put it into the into the soil. So you know, like right now, one of our biggest expenses and uh, Nason, you, you can come in for this. Uh, like if we look at expenses, right? Like one of the biggest expenses you have in a farm is nitrogen fertilizer. So you have yeah. to buy nitrogen from this huge, uh, you know, chemical company, and you have to throw it on the ground, hoping that somehow uh, the microorganisms uh, convert it and the plant manages to absorb it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and instead of that, like, I mean, before all nitrogen in planet Earth was uh, like, you know, like most of the air is nitrogen. But us humans were not able to take nitrogen from the air and plants aren't able to do so either. Microorganisms are able to take nitrogen from the air and put it in the ground for plants to absorb. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just grinding. We're making a coffee. Um, okay. But then... Um, Okay, so before uh, modern times, 100% of the nitrogen in your body was absorbed by uh, microorganisms, putting it in the soil and like the natural way. Uh, but by now they've created, like, you know, there were some Germans, I think in the 1800s, uh, they created uh, chemical ways of getting nitrogen. Um, you know, so now half of the nitrogen in your body comes from like these chemical ways of, of getting nitrogen. Yeah, so maybe uh, Nason, uh, Nason just recently joined the team and he's an accountant. So you can ask him a bit about like the cost of fertilizer, like how much of an impact that is in a farm and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Morning, Nason. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Yeah, Hello. so exactly. Rodolfo has just said the question for me. So like, a substantial amount of the costs we know that a farm incurs is getting the coffee fruit to be available. And it's like, I imagine a lot of that has to do with like keeping the, the plant as productive as possible. So like one of those things is nitrogen, correct? Like Rodolfo just said. Well, in the first moment, I think that the, when you buy the chemical product could be a, a kind of very cost for the farm. Also, uh, the machinery could be a other 
other events very big could be. Okay, true. What's the um like over the over the course of a year? What is the 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 percentage of overall cost that like fertilizer or nitrogen yeah, takes up in the in the overall costs throughout the year? Roughly, roughly. It doesn't need to be exact. Just roughly. El, el costo más alto es el 70% de fertilizantes. That's, uh, that's uh, the agronomist Herson. He contributed there saying 70% is uh, fertilizer. Oh, wow. That is enormous. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, so we're trying to be organic because uh, we want to <laughs> reduce <laughs> its cost. Cost from 70%, 70%. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, right now we're going to look at that because, uh, like, there's, like, $100,000 budgeted for, like, nitrogen fertilizer. And I'm kind of yeah. like, <laughs> let's, like, try a different way, you know? Like, uh, yeah. So, like, how, how long how long has this uh, legume, legume planting slash growing nitrogen fixing... Uh, process experiment been happening and like have you have you like have you got any dividends from this yeah, yet? No, I mean like uh this is something that's been known since ancient times you know that beans uh you know will sort of refertilize the soil and stuff uh so like all the farms here have nitrogen fixing uh plants uh as shade trees um you know but then um it's sort of um like, you know, when I was growing up, they told me that it was the plants that were able to fix nitrogen, you know, so it's only recently that I learned that, no, no, it's not the plants, there's actual little microorganisms living in that plant, so they could die if you apply, like, all these chemicals, right, so it's not just like you plant the legume tree, and it's going to fix nitrogen, there's got to be like a live community there, um, you know, so it's like a nutrient exchange in the, in the root system, uh, so, you know, there's microorganisms living in the root area of the plant. And the interesting thing is that it, they exchange nutrients with the plant. So, for example, the, the plant is an energy factory. Uh, through its leaves, you know, it makes uh, photosynthesis. It gets energy from the sun and it converts it to carbon. So through the roots, it releases carbon, like sugars, uh, that feed the microorganisms. And the microorganisms different microorganisms in exchange give certain nutrients to the plant. Um, so when, when you're getting, you know, so like, for example, nitrogen fixing microorganisms could be there feeding the plants. And uh, when you start giving it chemical nitrogen, then the, the plant is getting its nitrogen from somewhere else. So it doesn't need to feed the carbon to the microorganisms. So you're breaking these relationships. Does it eventually does it eventually stop producing it? Like it doesn't need to do that act, so it just stops. Um, or yeah, I mean, just like a lot of things it, we know. don't really know. Like we're not scientists, you know. We're not. Um, yeah, 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 of course. Like we don't have like specific proof, but I mean, but you see, like you know, the the I guess like the final consequence here was just having all these old bourbons that had been sprayed with so many chemicals that when this new strain of leaf rust came and just completely destroyed the country, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, true. Okay. Getting on to what we were just talking about a second ago of organic, what does organic mean in Europe, Germany, where we are, or where I am now? Uh, Germany's drunk on the word organic. Mm -hmm. As a concept, it is good uh, when you think about it simply. What does organic mean to like a coffee producer? Is it something that is like laughed at? Is it like an aspirational word? Well, like how do you implement it? Is it real? Because like organic over here is more often than not a certification. Yeah. What, yeah. Do, what does it mean at origin? Well, um, I, I think um, like I've looked into certain certifications. So like in Europe, I guess like they're like easier on the European farmers. And there's like certain tolerance level for certain uses of certain chemicals, right? Um, but like what, what I did notice in Colombia, it's like imagine there's like thousands of small producers 
like how do you verify what they've sprayed in each farm, right? So like in the end, what they do is like chemical residue. So what I noticed that they were doing was like, they were just buying random coffees from small producers and then they would send it for testing of uh, glyphosate, like a, you know, pesticide. So, so they would, um? But when does this happen? Like you and I have been in Colombia together and we go to producers' places that they, they produce 60 kilos of coffee. Yeah, like yeah. So when when would that person it? ever no, no, get no, tested? No, no, no. I mean, they don't, they don't like <laughs> this, the, the individual farm doesn't get certified. Ah, okay. Yeah. Like they certify a co-op or something. Ah, okay. okay. So if you have like a lot of coffee from a thousand producers, who knows if a few of them sprayed chemicals or whatever, uh, but then the coffee just gets tested. And if it okay. doesn't come out as glyphosate positive, basically they can sell it as organic. Uh, so it's a very unverified system in a way. Um, you know, and I guess like bigger farms do get more policed. Uh, yeah. But what about I mean, in El Salvador? In El Salvador, not a lot of people do organic. Um, like here, there's a word called a, a band organic. So it comes from joining abandoned and organic. Uh, so like, you know, what you had here was uh, a lot of very large farms. So they were like private farms, you know, that were like a thousand hectares big or stuff like that, like very efficient farms. And in the 1980s, we had a land reform that took uh, the biggest farms away from the owners and gave it to the workers. Uh, you know, so it was like kind of idealistic project, but they didn't provide the support that they needed, right? Like financing or administration support. Uh, so a lot of these big farms, they just eventually ran out of money and then they became organic. So it was like, you know, yeah, it's organic because you're not buying any fucking fertilizer. Sorry to say it. Fuck. Uh, yeah, it's organic because you're not Swear, Swearing is fine. It's just like. I don't know. We're in ABC. You know, you're going to like. <laughs> Swearing is fine. Right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so they wouldn't buy the, they ran out of money and it's not, it wasn't like a proper management way. It was just like, oh, we're not applying anything. So now we're organic. Uh, but that's a very different way of managing than actually saying, like, I have to learn all the needs of a plant and, like, make sure it's getting, like, the specific nutrients it needs in an organic way. That would be a very active mm -hmm. way. That's what we're trying to do. But there's, like, people dragging their feet within our own organization, you know, people that don't believe uh, that you can do things in a different way. And, you know, so the, that that's, like, a big challenge for me to find, like, people that want to join and believe in these things and aren't like behind my back, like, yeah, whatever, man, like this dude's crazy. Like, you know, well, like you, you're, you're very much an advocate for change. So like in a, in an industry like coffee and coffee pro producing and coffee processing and stuff like that, mm -hmm. I can imagine that you're a bit of a dark horse. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, so something we're looking at right now is like, we made this file, like, uh, I think I shared it with you where we divide the needs of the plant throughout the year. Uh, that so was for, interesting. Yeah. So, for example, at the beginning of the year, uh, when there's like cell, like, you know, the little bean got fertilized, it's going to grow into a cherry. Uh, so the first thing it does, it's like cell division, right? It starts with one cell that's pollinized, starts dividing. Uh, so you have this short period of exponential uh, cell division that the more calcium the plant has in that moment, the more cells it's going to create. Uh, you know, so then you need to give it calcium right in that. Double down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then it's like, yeah, learning what the plant needs in different times of the year and applying just those specific nutrients instead of just being, because the easy solution, the normal fertilizer is like NPK, nitrogen, potassium, uh, phosphorus, right? And um, you just buy a bunch of that and spray it, like, you know, and then hope for the best. Uh, but then, like, you know, we're trying to be more scientific and do more targeted spending. Uh, so that's part of, like, not necessarily organic, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, when I look at it, like, if we're in a volcanic country, like, there's all these, like, nutrients in the volcanic soil. Like, we could just be, like, getting everything the plant needs from organic sources. So when I, you know, when I look at a budget, I'm like, okay, in the next three months, I got to blow $100,000 on, on some fucking, you know, chemical bullshit, you know, I'd rather like spend 50,000 on setting up like a compost center and uh, 
Yeah, for sure. But then it takes like, you know, it's very active. Like you have to go to the market to get this like veggie residue and you got to go here to get like the dry cow shit. And like, I don't know. It's also also like zero. It's also like a hundred or nothing. You need to like commit when you do this, right? It's not like you can't dabble a little bit with this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, we are kind of, you know, like we made a compost center uh, and, you know, I would, I would hope that the compost center by now would have like, hundreds of tons of of like dry you know compost that we could apply to the farms with but that's not the case like there's been a lot less you know so that's part of like learning how to manage people and like you know setting tasks and and specific goals and yeah i don't know it's like uh it's tough when certain people like you know don't aren't so into it or like drag their feet right yeah yeah also yeah yeah not understanding to that yeah I don't know, like I, I have a thing in the cafe, so like this has nothing to do with coffee production, but it's just like if someone if someone doesn't do something, it is either because they haven't been taught, like they don't understand why they're supposed to do it, they don't know how to do it, or they're choosing not to do it. So if they haven't, if they don't know how to do it, it's your job to teach them. And if they're choosing not to do it, they need to go. Okay, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> good advice. It's only it's one it's one of the two. It's never anything else. It's either they don't know how to do it or they're choosing not to do it. If they don't know how to do it, it's your fault, and you need to teach them how to do it. If they're choosing mm-hmm. not to do it, they got to go. Uh, yeah, that's fucking super interesting. The last topic that I would like to talk about is manipulating coffee. So, like through processing, manipula- manipulating coffee, either like changing, manipulating varieties to like create new varieties, like discovering new varieties trying to create new varieties, trying to change the flavor profile through whatever, be it like passive organic farming through like over water, not over watering because you don't control the sky, but you know what I mean? Like so, yeah, trying, to, trying to manipulate flavor. I'll, I'll start with the variety side and then Marcelo can take over with the uh, processing. Yeah. But so variety, you know, that's one of the main things we're looking at. Um, I guess like before I was more focused on processing and now I'm more interested in varieties uh, because I feel like, you know, doing processing sometimes is like putting makeup on a monkey. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, you'd rather have like, like, you know, like already a beautiful coffee, like, like directly from, from the tree, you know, so just uh, changing varieties, like just, it can improve your your land like so much, you know, so if you have like a Sarchimor that's like a bit herbal, you know, if you just put a Bourbon, it's going to be like sweet, but now people want these like super aromatic coffees, right? So we're, we can reach out with the geishas, uh, but, you know, but I'm kind of like, I don't want to have geisha like everyone else, you know, so my challenge is to find like floral, intense aromatic varieties that are not geishas, right? So we we're accomplishing that by, uh, working with Ethiopian varieties. You know, so we're planting cool. with Ethiopians. Um, yeah, uh, so those are going to be really interesting. Uh, because like right now they're like single trees. So we cut single trees and we pick the, the cherries from single trees to like develop the next generation. So uh, that's a non, like, you know, the most technological way of reproducing coffee right now is uh, from um, like, uh, like, tissue you know so like from a leaf you could like make new plants so that's like clone oh uh, yeah 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 i mean so like, like when you say you can like you can or like a lab can no no like a lab you know so here there there was like the national institute that used to do that um world coffee research i guess does things like that yeah. you know like they take pollen from one plant put in another plant uh and so those beans there um are from both parents and then you plant those but then like that plant if you would take seeds from that plant it would be really unstable and it would regress to one of the parents so what they do is clone them so then you can't reproduce by seed uh you're dependent on getting like the plants from them uh so my you know my thing is like to have seeds like our own seeds like that we don't depend on anyone uh you know so you can either do that through cross-pollination where you take pollen from one plant put it in another but you would need like at least seven generations to make a stable plant. So for oh, example, really? yeah. So Pacamara was created in El Salvador from the a midget uh, dwarf Bourbon Pacas. Uh, 
it was a spontaneous <laughs> mutation. Yeah, like you know, born one. Born yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's like a giant mixed with a dwarf. So in El Salvador, the Bourbon became shorter, like more wind resistant. Uh, so a more compact plant, so that's the pacas. And the maragojipe is a giant tipica. Happened in Brazil spontaneously. The tipica just grew bigger, larger beans. Um, so it's maragojipe. So they took uh, paca, mara, you know, pacas and maragojipe, mixed it, but they released it in the fourth generation. So when you plant pagamara, sometimes you get green leaves like apacas, and sometimes you get bronze, like more copper-looking uh, leaves that are like a maraujipe. So, you know, we started separating that. So we have a uh, green tip pagamara, bronze tip pagamara. And then this year we went further because um, the pacas bean is round and the maraujipe bean is long like a bigger long bean. So then you yeah. have four types of, of pacamara beans. You have the green tip with brown beans, the green tip with long beans, the bronze with brown and with long beans. So you have four different pacamaras. And so we separated the four types. And the most interesting profile was the long bean bronze tip, which is like approaching the maraujipe, but it, it produces a lot more than the maraujipe because it has some genes from the pacas. Um, you know, so imagine every year we're like choosing like the further refined varieties and make the profile more interesting. So, for example, like the mis misnamed uh, pink bourbon from Huila, <laughs> yeah. that looks like a like a cross pollination between a katimor and an Ethiopian plant. And when you plant them, uh, you get compact katimor style plants that cup like more like a caramelly kind of thing, and you get yeah. taller plants that. Um, are more floral, you know, so then if we only plant the tall type, then we get a floral plant. And then uh, this pink bourbon from Huila, it's a rust resistant. So imagine we put a rust resistant floral variety at 900 meters and we get a floral cup at 900 meters, you know, so that's kind of like we're looking at uh, disease resistance and floral profiles. And if we can combine those, uh, then it would be like uh, an interesting future for like larger production of coffee yeah that's so good nice mm -hmm. and then processing Celo can tell you if you think yeah nice yeah so yeah manipulating flavor by my first not first question my I'd, i had no idea that pink bourbon was rust resistant like it's completely rust resistant but at least like the strains that are here in el salvador yeah so far it hasn't gotten deep for us that's amazing that's excellent. Is there a tastier coffee that is Roya resistant? I mean, that that's then, the best one we found so far. It's like the so other options okay. we have are the Tabi and the, and the Portillo. But those are like yeah. Max 86 coffee. You know? yeah. It's like the floral component of the pink bourbon, the fruity floral can get it way higher. Yeah. Was it you that was telling me that Tabi grows differently in El Salvador? Like it doesn't look like such a chaotic plant? uh yeah but but also because like see we, we were applying a lot of nitrogen last okay. year uh like not last year but like the last two years uh yeah. so i think uh that led to like elongated growth uh so like you know the distance between branches is a lot higher here in el salvador but also okay. that we planted them under shade so they're probably like trying to grow to reach trying to get towards the sun yeah, yeah okay. because in colombia they, they grow without shade so they're used yeah, to true that so I don't yeah. know, it could be either or, but yeah, but they're like way longer here, like these like really elongated plants. Uh, so you know, we okay. need to learn how to manage them better, make them yeah. short. So that's part of yeah. like giving growth with calcium instead of nitrogen to the plant. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, okay, nice. Okay, out. cool. I mean, there's all these so so manipulating flavor with uh, with processing, what are what are some experiments happening at Finca Salvador and the other farm, which I can't remember so the name because it's changed. I, mean, I mentioned that Marcelo, he's part <laughs> yeah. of the coffee school project, right? So that's like our new project. Ah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so like I'm kind of handing over things at the mill and stuff. So like Finca Salvador and Finca Guanacaste are just like members of the coffee school project. And the coffee school project manages other farms 
and it processes coffee, you know, and then we want to process more coffee. The project is just starting out. Um, yeah. yeah. So Marcelo's doing processing with the coffee school. So cool. Nice. Yeah. Do you have a, like a specific question? Sorry. It was, uh, uh, my specific question is, is processing is, is your, not yours in specifically you, but like the people at origin that are making coffee and processing coffee, is the decision made based on variety or time of day or demand from the market or physical physical space because like natural processed coffee takes up more space on drying beds or patios or whatever like what is it that determines how you process coffee creo que la decisión principal para poder definir el el proceso es de acuerdo al mercado so the market ya que si hay tostadores interesados en perfiles eh, dulces, eh, se busca hacer naturales, eh, también hay muchos procesos experimentales donde se están cuidando eh, muchos factores como temperatura, madurez, eh, todo eso se define en base a, a lo que el, el tostador quiere. So based on what the roaster wants, uh... You know, so if they're looking for sweet coffees, we do naturals, you know, or more exotic profiles. We go into like experimentals where, you know, he mentioned looking at different factors like the temperature and things like this. Yeah. Okay, nice. Is there, like, what is, what is the wiggle room for you guys when it comes to like experimenting for the following year? Because like, like I assume that experimentation doesn't just come from demand. Yeah, I mean, so, so like, uh, I wish we would experiment more. Que co como es la estructura de los experimentos. Entonces, le voy a contar como de que un año hacemos experimento y si sale bueno, lo ponemos en producción. Yeah, so, so what we do is small tests the first year, uh, and then we can cut the, the experiments, and if they are good, then next year we can put it in production. But we'll do, like, a small production, and then if we get pre-orders, then we can like put it in a longer production, right? Uh, so, yeah. so far, like the two ones that kind of like were experiments at the beginning that are now like standards for us are like the 48 hour maceration or the 120 hour maceration. So we tried like different hour lengths and it just seemed like this three-step option seemed okay that we can have a normal natural, like that's cleaner. And then we have the 48 yep. hour maceration. So cherry maceration, 48 hours. That's a bit yep. fruity, you know, acidic or the 120 hours. And in theory should be more fermenty. So like, where do you want to stop? You know, like you want the clean natural, you want the 48 hours and fruity, or you want the more fermenty 120 hours. So I think that provides like three different options within our naturals that sort of fit uh, and they've become kind of standard. So we know that some people like this one or that one, and we can just do it for them, right? Yeah. Like in your sense, I would say like, remember like you, you, you started liking the wash, but then like, you know, like this year we like, you know, it's also our, our fault for not being proactive about getting these uh, requests, right? But usually we get like requests around November. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not your fault. It's my fault for not asking for <laughs> what I want on time. We should, we should, <laughs> we should look for it as well. But like around yeah. November, como que en noviembre queremos que los tostadores pidan a su pedido. So we put it in a file, and then they know what to produce. Yeah. You know? And usually, yeah. I think like for me, I think it's better to do naturals at the beginning of the season, and finish doing the wash at the end. Yes, it's because not, of the sugar content of the cherries, or what? Yeah, and like, I mean, it's been longer in the tree. It could be rotting, so you might as well remove the fruit and wash it. Yeah, yeah okay. I don't know. Like, yeah. So do you have another okay. big question for Marcelo? Do I have another? Uh, I did have a question a second ago, but I can't remember what it was. Ah, it had to do with the uh, with the 48-hour um maceration naturals do you is it taking the cherry and literally just like either putting it into a bag or putting it into a dark place or is it actually like removing the skin and mucilage but keeping all of the 
mass and product together. Me, digamos que es cuando hacemos la maceración de 48 horas, si es simplemente agarrar la cereza y ponerle una bolsa en un tanque y dejarla entera, o si le quitamos la pulpa y se mezcla todo. En ese momento es dejando la cereza directamente en la bolsa, eh, quitando el, el, el aire lo más que se pueda para que inicie una maceración. So, whole cherries in a bag. And okay. then you and the bag is the bag like a like grain pro bag or like a huge like a grain pro bag that we take the the air out and then you know, okay. it, gets, it gets put inside a sack so it gets laid down and then yeah. we like move it so every movement kind of smacks it releases yeah. a bit of juice so it's like sitting in its juice okay nice uh is the end result is the the um is the parchment like pink in the end? Que si, que si el musílago es como rosado. Like is there, is there like pigment transfer because of this? No, no, el musílago casi siempre se queda rojo. Cuando ya hay maceración de más de 48 horas, ya pasa rojo y... Yeah, so it's no longer pink, it actually gets red, he says. Y no, oh, wow. okay. la disculpa ya no se ve, se, se desaparece. Uh, like, like when, when you depulp it, there's not a lot of mucilage left. It kind of disappears, but it's all soft, like, so it gets, yeah. like, removed. Okay, crazy. Nice, okay. Nice. That is, uh, that is my last question there. And now I just want to ask you, you being Rodolfo, uh, let's wrap the podcast up. And I just want to ask you for your, your, your shameless plug. Now you get to talk for a couple of minutes about like what, what what's new in life. What do you want to talk about? Do you have any new varieties, new coffees? Do you want to like talk about how to get in contact with you if you want to buy green coffee? Uh, well, well or I mean, fucking you know, chilies like, or tomatoes or whatever. Well, I mean, you know, like the the two biggest changes that we're doing this year. Uh, like one of them is that you know we registered the coffee school here in El Salvador. So here in El Salvador, it's an agronomical school. Like we're trying to make it take off. Right now, we do seminars. But we're looking to buy, like we're managing like 14 hectares under the school of like small producers that didn't have money to invest in their farm anymore. So we're doing long-term contracts and we're planting and, and reactivating their farms. And so in this area, it's like an area of small producers. And we have three areas where we're working at different elevations, so different profiles. And so the idea is to and create this network of small producers that we support with knowledge and with uh, better varieties. And, you know, uh, so like the school is also like a learning thing for us. Like we don't have all the knowledge to, to teach. So, you know, it's about bringing experts in and like learning how to do compost properly, setting up a microorganism lab, grow our own microorganisms. So it'll, it'll be a process. We're only starting. And then in Germany, we made the coffee school Germany uh, to distribute the coffee. So we're, we're focusing on finding other producers that want to work like us in a more sustainable way uh, and bringing in their coffee. Uh, so, for example, in Colombia, like working with the Arawako community, like they're already like organic. They live sustainably. Uh, so they fit, you know, and they're working with microorganisms so we can share info. Like, you know, the sales of the coffee, we're going to buy them, like, microscopes. And, like, it's things that I have to learn, you know, like, identify microorganisms, learn how to reproduce them, look at them in a microscope. Like, that's, like, the next step in, in farming. Uh, so we need to get in there. And then, yeah, and then I, I think, like, learning... I think in life, sometimes like you have to find partners and decide that, okay, I could try to do it all by myself and have a hundred percent of a small operation. But if I bring in these partners, like they have different skills, they're going to help me out. And uh, so hopefully like, you know, we were three, three founders, like one is a roaster. So we get like kind of like internal feedback about what coffees to buy. And we're also sourcing a lot of coffee for this roastery. And then the other partner is a marketing person. So they bring in like this perspective of what does the roaster need, like the information they need and how to provide it and looking at ways of facilitating that. So I think we have different skills and it works well. 
so yeah, so that's the Coffee School Germany, and we have Coffee School El Salvador, and hopefully, you know, we'll be setting up Coffee School in different countries. So cool. Yeah. And it also sounds like a very strong partnership between the three of you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's working out well. Like, I think, uh, you know, the roaster is Hardy Build uh, from Build Cafe. Uh, he won Roaster of the Year this year uh, with uh, Crema Magazine in Germany. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Also, um, Hardy's a legend. Yeah, like, you know, so I would say, like, if I've been, like, supplying coffee for him for years and we've never had, like, an argument, you know, so it's like, uh, I guess, like, personalities sometimes fit or sometimes clash. And it's just like, you know, like two people are respectful to each other and, you know, you, you like, you understand what each person does and, you know. I'm, I'm, was... I'm 100% certain that I've been in the middle of an argument between you two over breakfast really? in, Pitali in Pitalito at like really? 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. that's not a serious, yeah. you know, it's not. <laughs> it's not serious at all. <laughs> I mean, he's healthy. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah like, sure. I mean, he just come back from a run. I think you and I were just waking up. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So imagine I have two partners, like one is an ex hockey player professionally in Germany and the other one's an ex football player. So it's, uh, at least like it's both in, professional, yeah. both German professional sports players. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. you know, team players. So that's, uh, that's a good thing. They know how yeah, to man, strong partnership. Sports, yeah. <laughs> anyway uh thank, thank you very much for uh thank you very much for your time coming on the podcast explaining explaining that side of your side of the pond your side of the coffee yeah great, coffee great pond. To, you know exchange with you yeah. yeah uh thank you thank you all your colleagues there as well Gracias a todos. Nice. have a good day at work see you, see you later brother bye